My name is Andrew Adams, and this is Don't You Dare Talk to Me. Today, I'm going to be reading you a story that I wrote. I don't have a title for it, but you can come up with a title, and you can put that title in a review on whatever you're listening on. I do hope that you enjoy the story. I am the owner of the greatest glass company in the entire world. I am a glass man. I sell glass houses to the many people who inhabit this planet. I do not discriminate against any of my clientele. For people of any race, religion, gender, profession, creed, or football preference, I will sell them a glass house. Except for Nazis. I hate Nazis. I will see my glass empire shatter before I sell a glass house or a glass house commodity to a Nazi. Nazis want nothing but to destroy and have people think they are really cool and smart, but as long as I am alive, I will do everything in my power to prevent both of those things from happening. I also declare that I will prevent every single Nazi from owning a The Greatest Glass Company in the Entire World brand glass house or glass house commodity. I have the best clientele of any business in the entire world. Hands down. No questions about it. You can check the charts. The statistics don't lie. Even the news reports can back up my claim. A month ago, I made a passing comment to a vendor, some little talkative Tom, that I may retire from the glass game and pass the massive glass torch to someone who could handle the girth. Well... One comment led to a rumor that led to an internet sensation that led to a mass protest of my retirement at Seward Mini Park in San Francisco, California. I heard there were about 40,000 people that turned out for the protest. 800 of them died in mortal combat with the police, which was a real shame. Another 80 or so died of embarrassment because they thought they were showing up for a different protest. I didn't attend the event. I thought it was pointless because I changed my mind about retiring a few minutes after I made the remark. Still, the event was a major success, and it seemed like all of my clientele had a lot of fun. As I said, I have the best clientele. They do not like to cast stones, and neither do I. I've not always been at the top of the world. I've had to belay my way to the top with only myself to spot me, but... Whom can I depend on better than me to spot I? I have employees that run the day-to-day, -day, but they're a bunch of horribly overgrown pond scum golem trolls with shit breath and old lasagna under their fingernails. And they're terrifically stupid, too. I threw a rocket one the other day, and it just looked up at the ceiling, rubbing its head. I would prefer not to talk about the employees. It makes me physically sick to even think about them. Like this one time, I was burning the ends of the hair on one of those fecal goblins with a lighter, and it smelt like burnt rubber. It was putrid. And now, I'm unable to smell burning rubber without violently vomiting stomach acid. No, I do not want to talk about those giant mutant sewer maggots. I want to talk about how I became the owner of the greatest glass company in the entire world. It all started when I was a boy of 27 years old. I had my first sexual encounter with an 86-year-old neighbor. Her name was Jean-Charlotte Dolfhaus, a seasoned and 
sensual woman. She came on to me very strong, but she was a gentle lover, and I have not been with anyone like her since. To this day, I'm still unable to eat cottage cheese without getting nostalgic. I feel as though I should preface this story with another. Only then will you be able to fully understand how I became the owner of the greatest glass company in the entire world. It all started when I was a younger boy of fifteen and three quarters. I lived in a happy home with a happy father and mother. Everything changed, though, when my dear parents brought it home. A very unwelcome addition to our little paradise. A coffee table. Solid, unstained oak with elephant legs. It was heavy and hideous. I have seen many coffee tables in my time on all-glorious Mother Gaia, especially glass ones. But the one that was brought into my childhood home was pure evil. The unstained wood led to splinters and chips, and the table's dimensions were just slightly off, so it always seemed to be getting in the way. This led to the incidents. My father... He would be peacefully reading the paper and smoking his pipe while he took a walk around the house and yard, when at a point he would enter the living room and stub his big toe on one of the four trunks of the coffee table. He would scream in agony, which would then signal my mother to rush into the living room and accidentally stub her big toe on the coffee table. Mother would cry out miserably, and this would cause my father to rush to her aid, only to stub his big toe on another section of the coffee table. This chain effect would go on for about an hour or so before both of my parents passed out from their collective pain. These incidents would occur three to nineteen times per week at various parts of the day, primarily in the evenings when my father took his pipe and paper walks. My parents eventually developed GSBTS, or Giant Swollen Big Toe Syndrome, commonly known as Clown Nose Toe, and were unable to walk or work. I was forced to drop out of the sixth grade to find a job to support my family. The day I went from being a younger boy to a boy was when I got my first job scrubbing the dumpsters out back of an outback meat eatery. It was an aggressively Australian-themed restaurant chain and one of the best places to eat in town. Luckily, the group overseeing the franchise were kind enough to hire a boy my age. It was run by a trio of local ill-natured football hooligans, their names escape me, but I do recall they all had two things in common. A deep hatred of Chelsea FC and a propensity towards violence. The traits seemed to intersect all too often. When you applied to Outback Meat Eatery, the trio requested that you state your football team preference. The day I applied, the applicant in front of me had stated their favorite team was Chelsea. The trio had fallen upon the applicant quickly and viciously beat them about the shins, knees, neck, and armpits. The applicant had crumpled into a heap after the beating, and the trio continued their assault by blowing their vuvuzelas into the applicant's face and ears as loud as they could. The trio then took the applicant to the roof of the Outback Meat Eatery while loudly explaining to the applicant why Chelsea was the inferior team and why they would not be a good fit at Outback Meat Eatery. The trio then threw the applicant off of the roof into the parking lot and then returned to interview me. I smartly told them that I went for Brentford, to which they deemed me a good cunt and hired me as their newest dumpster scrubber. 
As a dumpster scrubber, I was tasked with a variety of responsibilities. I would oversee the drop-off of trash from within the building, fend off any rodents and pests from interfering with the trash, scrub the outside and inside of the dumpster with my trusty, licensed Outback Meat Eatery rag, and inspect the trash for any contraband or reusable product. There was a great deal of benefits that the position had. Uh, the best of them was getting to work outdoors and getting free steak someone did not have the consideration to finish. On a good day, I was able to put together three entire steak dinners from scraps over the course of my shift. I would then take the plates home to my parents and feed it to them. Over the years, their GSBTS uh, had progressed severely and had caused them to lose their ability to feed or bathe themselves. It was a very difficult time. There was a discussion of amputating their afflicted toes, but there was a chance the operation could cause the clown nose toe to spread throughout their bodies. Despite all the struggle, the end was still inevitable. It was my 18th birthday. I had just finished an overnight shift at the Outback Meat Eatery, and I had returned home with two plates of gristle, mashed asparagus, and cheesecake crust to feed to my mother and father. They were passed out near the coffee table in their usual spots where I would find them each day when I would return home. Only on that day, I was not able to rouse either of them with my usual method of buckets of water and air horns. Using buckets of water to wake them was actually beneficial because I did not have to bathe them as often. Sometimes I would soap up the water a bit before I splashed them so it would make them smell a little bit better. That day I splashed them 14 times and used the air horn as long as I could stand. No matter how hard I tried, they would not wake up. I stuffed them into a taxi and rushed them to the hospital as fast as the speed limit would allow. At the hospital, the doctors told me my parents had fallen into a coma due to gout. I explained to the doctor their condition was due to clown nose toe, and he should reconsider, otherwise they could die from a misdiagnosis. The doctor had grabbed me by the shoulders and sternly told me he was diagnosing my mother and father with gout and that he was a doctor. Shortly after, my mother and father died from a misdiagnosis. You never really think about how much blood the human body holds until two people spontaneously explode from misdiagnosis right in front of your eyes. I'll never forget that day. It had officially become my worst birthday ever. I could not afford to have my parents cremated, and the hospital refused to give them any type of receptacle to be carried in. So I used a couple of Outback Meat Eatery takeout bags. I labeled each bag mother and father so I would not get the two confused. I returned home from the hospital with the remains to find the house had been ransacked by raiders from the next town over. They had taken everything except the coffee table. I swore that I would get my revenge on the coffee table for killing my parents. I left my parents outside on the porch to cool off while I equipped myself to take on the coffee table. In my father's tool shed, I found gasoline, kerosene, ether, bleach, vegetable oil, chlorine trifluoride, hand sanitizer, ethanol, and grain alcohol. I mixed my collection into a soup and filled the solution into my father's empty whiskey bottles. I stuffed each with pages from my father's porno magazines and fastened them into a bandolier I had fashioned from my father's satchel and discarded lawn johns. I painted my face with grease from the lawnmower and made my way back to the house to murder the coffee table. My world was shaken yet again when I returned to the house. 
Rabid dogs from the next town over had swarmed the porch and eaten my parents' remains. A rage I had never felt before took over me. I killed the alpha of the rabid dog pack in retaliation for my parents. I did it by picking up the alpha's back legs and making it walk like a wheelbarrow until its heart exploded. I then fastened the alpha's pelt into a headdress in order to intimidate the rest of the rabid dogs. I stormed the living room, but the coffee table had disappeared. I searched the house and found the coffee table was in the kitchen. It had a birthday cake with 18 candles. On the cake was my name. It had remembered my birthday. My nerve was broken. I was not able to kill the coffee table. It had remembered my birthday when no one else had. That was when I discovered it was all a ruse. As I was taking off my bandolier of whiskey bottles, I saw there in the reflection on the window that the coffee table was going for a knife in the block on the counter. I spun around and engaged the coffee table in hand-to-hand combat. The coffee table had fought hard, but it was not able to stand up against my years of disciplined training. As I landed the lethal blow on the coffee table, it whispered something to me, but I did not want to believe it to be true. The coffee table told me before its death that it just needed something to cut the cake with. That was when I remembered. There was cake, and I could have a slice of it. It was still my birthday, after all. I took up the coffee table's knife and cut myself a healthy slice and sat down on the coffee table's corpse to enjoy my treat. I took a few bites of the cake when it dawned on me that this is what the coffee table had wanted. It wanted me to enjoy a slice of the cake because there was something in the cake. I looked to where the rest of the cake was on the counter, just as the timer on the bomb in the cake counted down to zero. The explosion was intense. It consumed the entire house and yard in a white-hot blast, but luckily I was able to hide under the corpse of the coffee table to survive. I had become exhausted from the day's events, and I stumbled through the rubble before I passed out against the remains of the fireplace. When I awoke hours later, I found myself surrounded by another pack of rabid dogs. It may have been the same pack of rabid dogs that I had battled earlier, but I was having a difficult time discerning what time it was due to my senses being fogged by exhaustion, grief, and birthday cake. I resigned myself to die. At 18, I had lived a long and fruitful life. Just as the dogs were about to pounce on me, a series of shots rang out, and a number of dogs were covered in poison darts. Seven large men in coveralls and tactical gear sprang out of what was left of my mother's topiaries and attacked the dogs with large dart guns and dog catcher poles. I was thankful the men had shown up because I would rather be killed by humans than dogs. After the strangers killed off the pack of rabid dogs, they turned to me, and I resigned myself to die again, only this time to humans. The largest of the men helped me to my feet and identified himself as Richard and the group as the Five Tylers and Two Tonys. Together, they formed the Wild Animal Response Tactical Specialists, or WARTs. They were a rogue group of dog catchers from the next town over that did not agree with the traditional methods their employers requested them to use. Richard explained to me how there were no rules or morals in the animal kingdom, so WARTs would not operate by any rules or morals. Richard insisted I join Warts for protection, since the rabid dogs would continue to hunt me if I stayed in the area. 
With nothing else better to do, I decided to join Richard and his warts out of fear of having gaps in my resume and being arrested for wild dog homicide. Making the choice to join up with warts was the worst one I could have made. There was no pay, and there was no set work schedule, only chaos. Richard and his warts would spend their days roaming the countryside hunting packs of wild dogs and handing out pamphlets to pedestrians on why dog-catching regulations in the country were too strict. Richard said he wanted to cover the entire country in warts, and there was no time to rest until he had converted everyone. I traveled with warts all over the country for several years. I was charged with maintaining the team's equipment, reloading the poison dart guns, polishing the dog-catching poles. Very simple, but rewarding work. I did not have the heart to kill any more dogs. After my epic battle with the Alpha that killed my parents a second time by eating their remains, I swore off killing animals, with the exception of hunting for food, or to stop an animal on animal violence, or animal on human violence, or animal on supernatural creature violence, or if one was scamming an old person out of their money. Apart from that, I swore off animal killing forever. Richard, the Five Tylers, and Two Tonys were put off by my tendency towards pacifism. Despite this, they still accepted me for who I was, and I was grateful for their understanding. I am saddened by my departure from warts, but much like wearing a pair of soiled underwear for three days, I needed a change. When Richard and the warts began to accidentally mistake humans for packs of wild dogs, I discovered the warts were just another group of common warlords. I was hurt by this even more because I was in love with two of the Tylers and one of the Tonys. It was only after Richard mistook a group of 7th graders on a field trip to the local veal packing plant that I knew I had to stop warts. I could not go to the police because Richard had told the police before that the murder was an accident and they let him and his warts walk. I decided to take matters into my own hands. I knew all of the warts were combat specialists from years of fighting packs of wild dogs, so I had to be sneaky. I waited until late one night when all of the warts went to sleep. I had purchased a raw chicken breast earlier in the week and hidden it amongst the team's food rations. I cut the raw chicken breast into seven small pieces. My father had taught me the ancient art of poisoning. I had learned how the smallest amount of raw chicken breast could kill a grown man almost instantly. I went around to each of the bedrolls of the two Tonys, the five Tylers, and finally the Richard, and slipped a small cut of raw chicken under their tongues while they slept. I went to bed immediately after to ensure full deniability. When I awoke, I discovered that my plan had worked perfectly. All of the warts had died of salmonella. It was the perfect crime. I gathered the few possessions I amassed over the course of my travels with the warts and decided to return home to give my parents a proper burial. It had been six years and a third of another year since I had been back home. It looked just the same as when I had left it, a smoldering pile of memories and wreckage. I could not find any of my parents' remains or the Outback Meat Eatery bags I had carried them in, so I decided to go to the Outback Meat Eatery in town to get a couple of bags and just bury those. I had to take the bags by force from the high school girl working as the hostess that time because I refused to purchase anything from the restaurant to carry in the bags. 
I also had to incapacitate the football hooligan owners with my warts training when they accused me of being six years and another third of a year late for work. I gave them a pamphlet afterwards explaining why I would never work at a disgusting establishment like Outback Meat Eatery and how Chelsea FC is the shit. I returned home with the bags and washed the high school hostess's blood off of them before burying them in the backyard under my mother's tire swing. The night I arrived back home, I slept in the remains of my childhood bed, and I had a dream that I had never had before. I was standing on a mountain, looking down on the world, and out of the air came an enormous celestial goddess that crept from the sky and exposed two supple, oily, triple-stacked cheeseburgers from beneath her robe and blessed me with one before casting the other to the stars. She watched as I enjoyed her beefy gift, and she was very accepting of my critiques. After I finished the sandwich and I double-checked the goddess did not have anything I could wash the burger down with, she informed me the burger had been drugged and I was about to be incepted. Before I could ask the goddess if telling me I was about to be incepted would defeat the purpose of me being incepted, I fell into a deep sleep. In my dream within my dream, I was a young farm pig with the instincts and ambitions of a sheep-herding dog. I was orphaned at a young age, and I was taken in by a kind-hearted farmer and raised in a litter of border collie puppies. Despite my peculiar nature, I was eventually accepted by my adoptive father, the farmer, and the other farm animals. I stopped sheep rustlers from making off with the kind-hearted farmer's sheep, and I became a hero to the farm. One night, though, a group of wild dogs from the next town over attacked the flock. I was able to scare off the pack of feral dogs with my cunning techniques, but the matriarch of the flock had been mortally wounded and passed from her injuries. For the first time in my life, I caught the hot, salty taste of failure full in the face. The kind-hearted farmer did not lose faith in me, though, even after almost killing me for thinking I was the one who murdered the matriarch of the flock. He entered me into a local sheep-herding competition, during the competition, I was able to take full control of the sheep being herded after being given the secret password. Praise be true, Baram you. I promised I would never use the secret password against another sheep with malicious intent. I was able to win the sheep herding competition, and along with it, the respect of the kind-hearted farmer. I was known then as the Sheep Pig. I was adored by the town. However... After every victory, eventually will be another failure. Months after my win at the local sheep herding competition, I was helping the kind-hearted farmer repair a pump on the farm, and I caused an accident that severely injured and disfigured the kind-hearted farmer. He was unable to continue to work, and shortly after the accident, representatives came from the bank and told the kind-hearted farmer he would be evicted if he did not pay his mortgage by the end of the month. I was taken to the city by the farmer's wife and thrust into a wild odyssey in the burned-out streets of a metropolis. The farmer's wife got pinched in a sting operation, and I was left to fend for myself, just a little pig in the big city. I was chased by guard dogs, animal control officers, almost run over by cars. I met chimpanzees, orangutans, rats. I even watched one of the chimpanzees give birth to twins. My life had become nothing but hustle. I got involved with a property conversion deal, 
an out-of-date hotel was turned into a star-studded nightclub, and I was able to convince the owner to help spring the farmer's wife and pay off the mortgage on the farm. She agreed in exchange for a place to stay on the farm. I only agreed to the deal because I had planned on eating the hotel owner anyway. The farm had been saved, and the kind-hearted farmer recovered. He was even able to fix the water pump without becoming mortally injured again. Before the kind-hearted farmer could give me a positive affirmation for the work I had done, my world was thrust into darkness, and I was pulled into the sky by an invisible hand at mock speed past unreadable names and broken letters. Then I woke up. I was back in the dream I had fallen asleep in. I had toppled over when the drugs and the cheeseburger knocked me out, and I hit my head on the coffee table on the way down. I had shat my pants at some point, and I was starting to really get an annoying hangnail on my left index. The goddess was nowhere to be seen. On a television set nearby, a VCR was running the ending credits to Babe, Pig in the City. I was puzzled by this. At least a thousand pieces worth of puzzling. Was it all a dream within a dream? Or had I been aggressively drugged by another mysterious woman again and left to watch Babe, Pig in the City? I tried to interrogate the television set on who put it up to this, but all it could do was rewind the tape and play parts of Babe, Pig in the City to explain it was also drugged and left there to play Babe, Pig in the City on repeat for eternity. Just as I was about to consider making an escape plan for myself and the television, I was struck in the head by a burnt 2x4. Then I woke up, only this time in reality, where I was laying on a burnt, urine-soaked mattress in the charred remains of my childhood bedroom. A charcoal board from the room above had fallen through the hole in the ceiling and onto my head, snapping me out of the sleep and into a grade 3 concussion. I stumbled about the house enraged, then saddened, then enraged again, then calmed, then enraged, then saddened, enraged, content, saddened, enraged, saddened, suspicious, then enraged again at why someone would ever live in a house made of bricks and plaster and insulation and boards. Why not just the good stuff? Why not just glass? Then no boards would ever fall on people's heads when they were trying to sleep. It would never burn down in vicious battles with wild dogs and coffee tables. Why not glass houses? Nobody could ever get hurt in a glass house. I decided then I would no longer be a filth boy living in the burnt houses with the trash people of the world. I would be clean, pure, unmolestable. I would be a glass man. I went to a bank I will keep anonymous for now, and I took out the largest startup loan possible to start the greatest glass company in the entire world. Just getting the trademark for the name the greatest glass company in the entire world was difficult enough, but that's a story for another time. I hope you enjoyed the story. If you thought of a name for it, go ahead and leave it in a review on whatever you're listening on and give it five stars or however many stars that you think it needs. This has been Andrew Adams with Don't You Dare Talk To Me. If you listened all the way to the end, good listening on you, listener. I love you.